0: Lord once again we come before you asking for wisdom not just to understand these events but Lord to comprehend how these events are given to us to shape us and to to mold us Lord to be what you want us to be and so Lord allow us to be humble before you this morning to be teachable allow me as your messenger simply to be faithful to this text. And uh, Lord, would you be glorified in all that is said and done? We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, some of you were here last week. And if you were here last week, you had the opportunity of participating in a gift from the churches in Rivne, Ukraine. We gave you a big rosin chocolate. Now probably what you did is you unwrapped it and you stuffed it in your mouth and you said, "Mm, this is good. And it was good. And if you were another kind of person, you took a bite out of it and you examined it. And if you're that person, you probably noticed that there were some layers to that piece of chocolate. Milk chocolate on the outside, kind of an almond filling on the inside. So I'm sorry that you weren't here last week because you missed out. And the point of that is that there were layers to this candy. And these layers were not supposed to be eaten separately. They're supposed to be eaten together. You're supposed to take the chocolate and the almond all together. And it's that togetherness that makes the candy go pow in your mouth, right? It was just a wonderful experience. I'm sorry. I only have about 100 left, and I'm not giving you any more. (laughs) But you see, it's the togetherness that is what makes them punch. And today, as we, we look at our text, as we come to this text, we have a text that has two layers to it. And most of the text is On one layer, verses 11 through 22, basically is a human layer, if you want to put it that way, where the focus is on Moses, and that layer is divided into two parts. There's two scenes that we see, Egypt and then Midian. But there at the end of the the text here, there's another layer, and it's a layer where the focus is on God. It's the divine layer. And these two texts are to be studied separately, but in unison. They go hand in hand. And they remind us, friends, that even when we're studying a text where characters are shaping the story and God doesn't seem to be in the story, he is. He's in the background. He is at work in the midst of this unfolding story. Remember, he is a sovereign God who's working out his will by his providence. That's what we learned last week. That the events of the birth and protection of this little child, they were a significant hinge that changed the course of history, and they were all under the careful and providential hand of God. And we learned that God is always working to accomplish his purposes in our lives by his providence. Providence. That he takes our fears, he takes our boldness and our struggles and our heartaches, and he works his will somehow through all of that, even through our weaknesses, to bring about what he intended. That's God working out his promise, uh, his providence. Now, as we turn to our text for today, I want you to pay special attention to the wisdom of God in raising up his deliverer. So we looked last week at the providence of God, but this week we want to think about the wisdom of God. How is God now working his plan in raising up this deliverer? And like I said, so far we've seen the plight of Israel's situation. By God's hand of blessing, we find in chapter 1, verse 7, these words. The people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Then Pharaoh rose up, who did not know Joseph, and he saw how strong the Israelite people were becoming. So he, he changed their status from welcome visitors in the land of Egypt to uh, enslaved workers under the heavy hand of harsh taskmasters. And he tried to have the newborn boys aborted by the midwives, but they wouldn't do it. And then he made a decree... Or an edict that said, Every son that is born to Hebrews uh, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You see, his goal was to reduce their number and, if it even was possible, to eradicate them. But the people multiplied and grew strong. God's promise to his people was still being fleshed out by God in spite of this great opposition. So clearly God was being faithful to his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He was growing a nation of his people in a foreign land. And then last week, we studied the birth of God's deliverer. We saw the the faith and fearlessness of two simple parents who, in the midst of all of this, when they could not keep him quiet anymore, put him in a basket, put him out on the, the, the waters of the Nile, trusted God, and God by his providence brought along Pharaoh's daughter who took pity on that child, then not only took pity on it, but desired to have a nurse uh, raise that child. That nurse ultimately would be that child's mother. And then at the end of the, the nursing time, that child was handed back to Pharaoh's daughter And she adopted him and raised him as her own. And she named him Moses, which means to draw out. So there's all these things that are happening that we saw last week. Now, this is where the story ended at verse 10. Now, we jump in to what I'm calling the strategic preparation of Moses. And we jump into this text, and we notice that this text begins with these words. One day when Moses had grown up. So clearly there's time between verse 10 and verse 11. Now, if we read this text through the lens of today's culture, we're tempted to think that Moses was probably around 18 years or so. right? Because this is what we think. right? This is what happens in our culture. Hey, mom, stop treating me like a little child. I'm an adult now. I'm 18. I'm all grown up. What parent has not heard those words? Others would be tempted to say, well, it's when you turn 21 that you grow up. There's certain rites of passages, and there's freedoms and restrictions that are now lifted off of you. So now you're grown up. No more restrictions. Well, that's true, son, unless, of course, you want to be the president of the United States. You have to be 35 years old then, And you have to be really grown up, supposedly. Now, I have had a good life. And I remember being 18, I remember being 21, and I remember being 35. And honestly, I think that back then I was doing okay as far as maturity was concerned. I mean, I wasn't crazy or anything like that. But now that I'm older, I look back and think to myself, there was so much about this world so much wisdom so much about life that i thought i knew but i really didn't know 18 was not a magical mark that all of a sudden poof boom oh now i know i'm an adult there it is 21 didn't do that 35 didn't do that but what i realize is that now that i'm on in years <laughs> I'm still growing up, and hopefully you are too. Now, last week, I took time to remind you that when we study the Word of God in light of other passages that might shed light on the text we're studying, they might give us some interpretive keys to understanding our particular text. And that's what we have here. And at the same places in Acts 7 and in Hebrews 11, where we find some, some uh, inspired data, if you want to put it that way, that helps us. The first one, of course, is Acts 7, where Stephen is preaching a sermon before the Jewish council in Jerusalem, and in this sermon, he leans heavily on recounting the story of Moses, and he says the following about about Moses in verse 11 of our text. He says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 23. You might want to keep your finger over in Acts chapter 7, or a piece of paper or something that we're going to kind of flip back and forth as we go through the sermon today. But here's how what he says, verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So when Moses grew up, he was 40 years old. Hey, Dad, Dad, I'm 18 now. I'm 18, I'm all grown up. Well, biblically speaking, son, um, now we're not told that that's supposed to be like a, a benchmark, but what, what we're finding here, though, is that these events now begin when he's 40 years old. And this is an anchor that begins this text. Again, in Acts 7 and verse 30, at the end of what we have looked at or read for today, what would be happening after this, we find in chapter 7, verse 30, there's another anchor that ends this text, and it says this, now when 40 years had passed, what we have recorded in our text today is 40 years of activity. And just kind of put that as as kind of a backdrop. Moses is 40 years old, and by the end of our text, there's going to be another 40 years that have taken place. Okay? And, again, you think about 40 as a motif in a piece of literature. How long were the children of Israel in the wilderness? 40 years. All right? So you're just thinking there's this idea of 40 going on here that is helping kind of drive these stories. Now what we notice, though, is Moses here, as he's being prepared by God, it's happening strategically, but it begins in Egypt. And what happens in Egypt is failure. And we're going to walk through what that looks like here. I want you to notice, first of all, it begins with verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. And I want you to think about this. If he's 40 years old, he's grown up in Egypt, and he's grown up as an Egyptian in the royal court, so to speak, and family of Egypt. In fact, in Acts 7, 21 through 22, again, this is, this is Stephen's sermon It says this, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. So to be sure, he had a good education. To be sure, he understood their culture, their practices, their mindsets. To be sure, he had been trained as a soldier. To be sure, he had learned to live among the elite, expecting his word to be received and obeyed. But all this was preparation for what God was calling Moses to do. But what this text begins to tell us is that Moses was fully embraced as an Egyptian. Now, think about this. Forty years is a long time. It's a long time, and it's a long time to be immersed in one culture. And to be immersed in one culture where you are living as part of the elite of that culture. So we understand here that that Moses at this point in time, although he's a Hebrew, is also an Egyptian, fully and completely, except for the fact of his blood. That's the life that he knows. It's the lifestyle that he knows, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but there was a time in my life when I thought that age 40 was ancient. I thought that I would never get there, right? But now, when I think of someone who's in their 40s, I think of someone who has been around for a while, who has passed their youthful passion and zeal, has settled down to begin live life with some balance and wisdom. So there's everything in this text that's telling us that Moses had grown up physically, intellectually, socially, and with some measure of maturity. His time in that Egyptian royal family had served him well on many fronts. And that's why what we read next is rather baffling. Notice, as we continue on in this verse, we read, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Now, this should shock us a little bit in one sense. We're probably so familiar with it that we don't recognize the impact of this. But here here he is at 40 years of age, and something is going on in his heart. He begins to identify with his people. And this expression, his people, is used twice in verse 11. His people, his people, not talking about Egypt, but talking about the Hebrews. The writer of the book of Hebrews gives some perspective here. Verse 24 of chapter 11, by faith Moses, when he he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, we don't know exactly to what degree Moses had the clarity of this future Messiah, but what he was doing, and this is what What Hebrews 11 is saying is that all these people believed the promise of God. And they acted by faith on that promise. And here is Moses now who is choosing the path with his people rather than to stay as uh, an Egyptian. So as this is unfolding here, we understand that what is going on is grace is at work in his heart. And he is compelled to notice his people, and he begins to go out to the labor camps and the places where they're doing the construction, and he sees how his people are being treated. And he, as he does this, he's feeling a solidarity with them, and he realizes that they're his blood relations, the people of his very own family, and as he looked on their burdens, he was moved with emotion. The, trans, the word translated, looked on here, does not simply mean to observe, but it means to observe with passion. It means to observe with compassion. So he's looking, and he's, he's looking, and he's seeing what's going on, and he's moved in his emotions by what he sees here. And the more he looked, the more he identified with his people, and the more he was overcome with emotions. He saw the misery of his people as they suffered as slaves under the heavy hand of Pharaoh. And in the end, their burdens became his burdens. Now, friends, this is staggering when you consider the Egyptian culture of the day, because there was this huge divide between, you might we say, the, the Egyptian upper class and even the working class. The upper class despised the working class. They were there to serve the upper class. So you think about what the upper class did and their attitude towards slaves was. And yet here is Moses having a cultural shift, a cultural paradigm that ultimately would be a cultural offense. But the more he looked, the more he identified with their suffering. And friends, we're told... But when Moses grew up, he went out to his people. He went out. And that that word or that expression, he went out, is the same Hebrew word, yatzah, that is later translated or used to describe the Exodus. You just say there's these different themes that are kicking in here to help us identify what is going on. So friends, before Moses could lead God's people out of Egypt, Egypt would have to leave Egypt. Moses. See, this is what we have to understand. Moses was fully an Egyptian in that sense. But before he could lead the people of Israel, as much as he had compassion on them, Egypt had to be taken out of Moses. And certainly God would use all the tools that helped shape Moses in Egypt as part of his formation as Israel's deliverer. But the grip of Egypt had to be loosened and reapplied to his people Israel. And the moment Moses' heart was moved with compassion for his people, he began to be willing to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. Now, friends, on a human level, what Moses chooses to do was unthinkable. He had everything the world had to offer. He had grown up as one of Pharaoh's grandsons, enjoyed all the riches and pleasures that came with his royal status. But he let go of that privileged position because of his compassion for his people who were enslaved. Friends, do you see the parallel that's going on here? Isn't this a foreshadowing of what we read in Ephesians 2 about Christ? Though he was in the uh, sorry Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose dominion and home was heaven, had compassion on those who were enslaved and humbled himself to the plan of God. And not only identified with them, but ended up dying in their place. My friends, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This is what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He identified with his people. But not only that, What surprises us as we read the story is his reaction to the injustice. It may not surprise us that he's reacting to the injustice. It may surprise us how he reacts to the injustice. Moses, as he continues to see the plight of his people, one day sees one of his people being beaten by an Egyptian. And he's so full of emotion with what he saw that he strikes the Egyptian and he murders him. Now, his actions may not be premeditated. They may be, just might want to say, a, a crime of passion because of this built-up emotion and charge that he's seen because of how his people are being treated. But there's plenty of evidence in the, te- in the text to, to help us understand that what we have here is actually murder. He looked this way and that, the text says, and he sees no one. Why would you do that? if this was justifiable killing, right? He knew what he was about to do and that it was going to be severe. Secondly, he struck down the Egyptian, means he clearly implies it was an act of murder. And third, what do you do with a body in Egypt? You find some sand and you bury that body in the sand. I mean, that's what else can you do, right? I'm looking for sand. There is plenty of sand. All right, I'm going to bury the body. There it is. Well, if what you're doing is not murder, it's justifiable, then you're not concerned about somehow concealing the evidence, are you? So what's going on here is clearly sinful. It's clearly not what God intended. And Stephen, in his sermon, gives this understanding of the account. And seeing one of them Being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Ah, so Moses is moved by justice for the oppressed Hebrew. Good, that's admirable. We love the fact that he's moved for justice for those who are oppressed. But friends, as we will see, although Moses had grown up, he still had much to learn. Moses sought to deliver his people In his own strength. He had the right motive, but he used the wrong method. And part of the reason he used the wrong method is because he didn't have anyone to guide him yet. He had this burdened, uh, this burning zeal in his heart, but he didn't have that zeal fashioned by God. And so he functioned out of his own strength to satisfy what he thought was justice on this particular Egyptian. So he's moved by justice and compassion. Now friends, he's angry and so he commits murder. And murder is simply anger taken to its logical conclusion. That's what Jesus said many years later. Listen to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21 and following. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, this is Jesus speaking, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And Moses will need to learn to harness his natural emotions and to channel his heart of justice and compassion so that it conforms to God's ways. So friends, maybe that's a picture of your heart this morning. Maybe this is what you're struggling with. You're one who gets angry at others or circumstances that you find yourself in, and so you feel justified to act sinfully. And maybe you're right, but your actions are sinful. And maybe you're right, but you're not looking to deal with your rightness God's way. And so you give into your flesh, and you lash out in words, tantrums, in violence. Friends, unfortunately, much of our society is beginning to talk about the legitimacy of harsh words, unbridled anger, and the use of violence against perceived oppressors. Culture comes up with their perceived oppressors, which many times will be you because you're a Christian, and they will justify speech that is harsh and damaging, we would call it hateful, and even behavior but they'll feel no conscience because there's a cultural norm taking place. Now, friends, be careful. Don't get sucked into that. There is a need for justice, but God has given you a new heart, a new heart that has a new mind, and he expects you to act and to think and behave in Christ-like ways, not simply based on cultural norms. And in our society today, although it might be darker, our responsibility is to be faithful to what God says in spite of what other people might do. Unfortunately, cultures change, but are we really surprised? The answer should be no. Now, friends, if there's a need for justice, it's not in your hands. It's in the hands of the courts and ultimately in the hands of the righteous judge who sees and knows all. The oppressor will never escape the gaze of God, right? Police force might be corrupt, judges might be corrupt, but God is never, ever corrupt. And the only solution for any oppressor is to bow their knee to the almighty God of the universe. So here we have his formation in Egypt, his identification with Israel, his reaction to injustice, but then notice his rejection as a deliverer. This comes as a shock to his system, doesn't it? You'd have thought that the Hebrews would have appreciated, oh man, this guy is fighting for us. He he killed this Egyptian and protected one of our brothers. But notice what happens. Instead, he's rejected by his people. Here's what we're told. When he went out the next day, behold, the two Hebrews were struggling together. So it must be another kind of squabble or fight that's going on. And he says to the man in the wrong, so obviously there's someone who's oppressing another. Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. There's some striking words, penetrating words here, aren't they? Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Ouch, that must have hurt. Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? I, wait, you, you don't get this. I didn't kill the Egyptian because he was simply the oppressor. I, I killed him because he's an Egyptian and he's oppressing you, a Hebrew. Here's what Stephen says about this encounter. It's a little bit longer. I'll read the whole thing. Verse 23 through 29 of Acts 7. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand (laughs) That although Moses was seeking to act on behalf of his people, his people did not understand that he was acting on their behalf. (laughs) I mean, here he comes, burdened. I'm an Egyptian. I have position. I have influence. I can be a help here. And he commits this murder. Look what I did for you. You did what? That wasn't for us. So not only is he rejected by the Hebrews, he's also rejected by Pharaoh. We see that there, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So in just a few days, Moses has gone from sitting in the lap of luxury in the royal dwelling places in Egypt to sitting down by a well located in the Midian wilderness. This is, on a human level, one big Fail. This is a moment in your life when you go, loser, I didn't make it, I totally blew it. But at the same time, Moses does not have a framework to understand what all those things are. So rather than winning his people over, he's rejected by them, and he become a failure. And now sitting by this well, he is out in the middle of nowhere, he's all alone. Philip Ryken helps to capture the moment. He says, for all his admirable qualities, his hatred of injustice, his opposition to slavery, his sympathy with those who suffered, his deep affection for God's people, with one rash act, Moses threw away 40 years of spiritual preparation. Although he had a holy zeal to rescue God's people, his zeal was not based on knowledge. His failure had nothing to do with his motivation, for his heart was in the right place. Rather, the problem was his method. Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works, rather than letting God save them by his grace. My friends, that's an important distinction. Sometimes we want to nudge God's plan along (laughs) by what we think needs to take place. When what we should be doing is to be faithful to him and to allow him, by his providence, to move things along according to his purposes and his timetable. Now, I'm sure that there's some church growth gurus that sit down and talk about this story and say, you know, it would have been better for Moses just to back off a little bit, to stay in Egypt in that position of being part of the royal family, because that's where he could have some influence for his people. That's really how this should work. I mean, look, look at what happened to Joseph. That's what happened to Joseph. He was embraced, he was loved, and the family was protected, and, and he was up with the... But that wasn't God's plan. Moses. God's plan is different than our plans. Or to say it a little bit differently, our wisdom is not usually God's wisdom. God is the one who is all-wise, and he's the one that is, is nurturing his plan and carrying it out by his will. So we can say, yes, Moses failed at being Israel's deliverer. Yes, Moses acted in his flesh and in his own power to bring justice to a fellow Hebrew who was being oppressed by a heavy-handed Egyptian. But in God's mind, Moses' failure will be the path for his growth. Now, we've got to be careful here because this is a description. This is not a prescription. This is not saying, go out and fail and presume upon God that that's going to be a means for your growth. But when we do fail, God uses that failure, if we are responding to that failure rightly, to be the means of our growth. And friends, it's a reminder that our sinful failures don't have to derail us. When we fail God by our sinfulness in word, thought, and deed, we must be willing to fully acknowledge our sin as sin. We must see it as an offense against God and others. We must see it in all its ugliness and its seriousness. And we must come to lean on the fact that through repentance, through confession, through forgiveness, that God is not done with us. He has not abandoned us. And that somehow, in ways that we cannot comprehend, God is at work, even through our sinfulness, to sanctify us and use us for his glory. Friends, that is stunning. It's amazing. It's overwhelming when you really think about it. It's also comforting, and it should be. But what we read next should both encourage us as well as slap us into reality. Our text moves from failure in Egypt to growth in Midian. Growth in Midian. So here he is sitting by this well in the wilderness of Midian, and surely the words, who died and made you prince of Egypt, are ringing in his head. And of course, the answer to that question is no one, at least not as far as the Bible indicates. It will be 40 more years before God would call Moses from the burning bush. So up until now, Moses has been operating as a self-appointed savior. Now he is a rejected murderer. Murderer. So how will God grow Moses in this desolate place? Well, notice, first of all, that he is restrained in his justice when he comes to his first test. It's a completely different situation this time. There's some women who come to the well to get water so that their flocks can be satisfied of their thirst, and some shepherds come and are harassing these women. And although the actors are a little different, the M.O. is still the same. Moses is moved by compassion and justice for these women who are being mistreated by these shepherds. But notice that the text is rather muted. It says, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. No mention of murder or any kind of violence, just Moses standing up to the injustice. And there are two things that are really said in this verse that he saved the daughters of Midian, he came to their aid, but then he serves the daughters of Midian by watering their flock. This was an unthinkable act for a man to do for women in that kind of time frame. Friends, Moses stooped to serve, and by learning to serve, he was learning to lead. And this is a mark of one of God's servants, that They lead by serving, and that's what Christ did for us, and that is what we are commanded to do for others. So first of all, he is restrained in his justice at this first encounter, but what we also see as the story unfolds is that he's shaped by his circumstances the circumstances that he encounters now begin to have an influence on him. You can just imagine the conversation taking place in the encampment when these women uh, came back to their father. His name is Ruel, but later we'll know him as Jethro. Okay, And his daughters come home early and speak about the behavior of Moses, about this Egyptian who came to their aid. And Jethro's thinking out loud, and you left them alone sitting by the well? Are you crazy? Go back and invite him for dinner and put your best dresses on and make sure the food you make tastes good. This is the kind of guy I want around. And to be sure, Moses liked what he saw and experienced that day. The text says he was content to dwell with the man. I think that's an understatement. and content to eventually marry his daughter, Zipporah. So what is happening to Moses? How is he growing? God, in his wisdom, is making sure that Moses is being shaped by his circumstances. First of all, he's shaped by his new circumstance of living, from a royal dwelling place to living in the wilderness. What we know about the Midianites is that they were desert nomads. Living in the wilderness, and always on the move. And to be sure, Moses, during the 40 years he was with Jethro in the wilderness, is learning about the wilderness. And the wilderness is a place where the basics of food and water are sparse, and so you must throw yourself on the mercy of God. It's also in the wilderness that many years ago, long before Moses, God met with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is at work in this new living situation for Moses. Secondly, he's shaped by his work. He is now a shepherd. It's interesting that in Genesis 46 and verse 34, we read the following from the lips of Joseph as he describes, as he speaks to his brothers, but he describes the attitude of the Egyptians toward Shepherds. It says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. But here is Moses, who was once a prince, you might want to say, and now is serving as a shepherd. And just think about the importance of that. it means to be a shepherd. This is language that scripture uses about about God's leaders. They're shepherds. As a pastor teacher, I am a shepherd. That's a role. That's a function. That's a responsibility that our elders have. And, And as a shepherd, Moses would learn all about what it means. Sheep are not very bright, which means that they need someone to lead them to food and water and to protect them. Sheep Make an easy target for predators, so they need someone to protect them, to guard them, to keep them safe. Sheep are prone to wander, so they need someone to bring them back into the fold. All right, these are natural things that Moses now is going to learn practically by his new vocation. And then third, of course, there's his family. He is both a husband and a father. When you've never been a husband, you don't know what it's like to be married. When you're not a father, you really don't know ultimately what it's like to be a parent, all right? And all the kind of nuances you have to experience as a husband and the kind of care and discipline you have to have as a father, all of these things are going to be preparation tools for him serving God as the leader, as the deliverer of God's people. Now, I want you to notice here, The scene from verses 11 through verse 22 has been building to a crescendo with the following words, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This was the perspective. This was the aha moment. This was what Moses ultimately had to realize about himself. Let's read verse 22 fully here. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses had left Egypt, having identified with his people. He had arrived in Midian, embodying everything Egyptian. But over time, God was looking to get Egypt out of Moses to the point that he fully understands that now he has been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is not a description of his present condition. This is a description of his time in Egypt. He realized. That his time in Egypt, in the royal life in Egypt, was him being a sojourner in a foreign land. This is where God needed Moses to get to. One person has said this. Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning to be something. He was 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing. And he will be 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. My friends, God has been at work strategically preparing his deliverer for his people. And he does that even through Moses' failure. Now, that's layer number one. Now we shift focus here, there's a new layer. It's another layer, and this layer actually is taking place over the same time period, right? And let's, let's just kind of jump in and see what is happening here. The, sh- the scene shifts away from Moses to God. He's in the heavens while Israel is in Egypt, still struggling and suffering. And we find that very, very clearly as the, the text unfolds here. Oh, there you go. Um, I don't know why that bounced ahead. All right, so he... Uh-huh. I got those, that's right. There you go, all right? I want you to notice, first of all, that Israel continued to be in bondage. Read verse 23, and I just want you to notice verse 23 and the kind of words that are used to describe their condition here. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. They cried for rescue from slavery uh, came up to God. I, I mean, first of all, just backing, backing up a little bit in, in the storyline here, how many pharaohs die and are replaced by new pharaohs, right? And still there is oppression on Israel, right? But it says here many days. And these are the days since verse 11. So that would be 40 years until Moses grew up. And that would be 40 years since Moses is in the wilderness with the Midianites. So that's 80 years, give or take a few years. So that's a long time for the people of Israel to be under the yoke of heavy-handed slavery. Right? I'm just try, trying to get the weight of what's being said here. For 80 years, the people have been crying out under the oppression and the suffering of the pharaohs. They were in slavery. That's hard labor kind of slavery. They're groaning because of their slavery. They were crying out to God for help, but God did not send help. All that time, day after day, death after death, funeral after funeral, the people would groan under their slavery and cry out to God for rescue, and there was silence, crickets. God is not responding to our cries for help. Surely, we are an abandoned people. Surely, our misery is not going to come to an end. So why not just give up on God? Why not just begin to worship other gods? Because apparently, our God is not doing what we want him to do. But friends, silence from God doesn't mean that God is not listening. And we've got to hear this. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care or that he's abandoned you. His silence is part of the wisdom of his providence. Now, why don't they know that God has been busy preparing, or what they don't know, I should say, is that God has been busy preparing his deliverer for his people. And in his wisdom, he's having them wait for their deliverer to come. So the struggle and the slavery and the suffering had continued. And it's important for us to remember that we cannot demand deliverance from God. We can appeal for it. We can cry out for it but it's always according to God's wisdom and God's timetable. He is not a genie that just comes running to your call. He is the God of the universe who is working out his plan for his purposes and for his glory, which is ultimately for your good and your your specific issue in life. He may bring an answer for, but there's a bigger picture going on here. And he knows that what he has in store for you is far greater than what you're going through right now. So we move then from this continued bondage in Israel, marked by these three words, to the intimate knowledge of God. Verse 24, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. These are beautiful words. But in light of the context of 80 years of suffering and silence, these are difficult words to comprehend, are they not? Well, first of all, let's just take each one of these together. God hears. So when we're suffering and crying out to God and there seems to be no answer, we can find ourselves questioning if God is even paying attention. But this text reminds us that God hears our cries. And it's not just that God hears, but in that hearing, he's listening. You know what I mean? It's one thing to hear someone's words. It's another thing to listen to what they're saying. God both hears and listens. That's what David is doing when he writes his psalm, Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my uh, Uh, My pleas for mercy. I love that word attentive. That's that hearing, that's listening, that's paying attention. I see what this is ultimately how we teach our children, isn't it? We teach them to listen with their eyes, their ears, and their heart. Eyes because you want their full attention. Ears because you actually want them to contemplate what you're saying. And heart because you want to connect with them on an intimate level. And I wonder, friends, if we need to go back to spring training. It's a baseball metaphor, but go back to some of the basics. Are we truly the kind of people that hear, listen, and are attentive? And if we consider Romans 8.26, where it says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Even those groans God hears, and he knows, and he understands. Those are wonderful things, friends. God hears. Secondly, God remembers. God remembers his promises, and he chooses not to remember our sins. Now, it's important that we understand that God does not forget God cannot forget. I know we use it in our language saying, you know, God is the God of forgetfulness. God is not a God who forgets. To forget is passive. God is not wandering around heaven looking for his keys that he's misplaced. You don't know when you forget. That's the whole reason why it's called forgetting. It's passive. But what God does is he chooses not to remember. It's not that he doesn't know your sins or that he can't recall your sins. It's that he doesn't hold those sins against you anymore. And that's why Jeremiah 31, 34 is so helpful for us. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And friends, it's so helpful for us to have that perspective of God because when we are called to forgive others, we are still remembering their sins. And we have a hard time because we're remembering their sin to forgive. But we're not called to forget before we forgive. We're called to take those sins that have been an offense to us and to forgive. And so change now our view of those sins to I'm not going to remember them. I'm not going to hold them against you anymore. We can do that. But if we function with this, well, I I haven't forgotten this sin, then we're going to be plagued because something can happen in life. Something you did forget about, but then you remember, there it is again. (gasps) Maybe I didn't forgive. Oh, you did. Just friends, it's helpful to understand how God forgives because that's how we ultimately should be forgiving. So God remembers. But what does he ultimately Remember. He's remembering his covenant with his people. His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did that promise comprise of? It boils down to three things. I'll give you land, I'll make you a great nation, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. So in spite of their slavery and suffering, God has not forgotten his covenant to them. No, he remembers his covenant with them. And in that word, remember, is the promise that he's being faithful to his covenant. Friends, he hears, he remembers, but he also sees. Just like Moses looked on his people and is affected emotionally, so God looks on his people and is moved with compassion and justice for them. As one old preacher says, every blow of the hand that buffets you, every cut of the scourge, every scorching hour under the noontide sun, every lonely hour when lovers and friends stand aloof, every step in the valley of the shadow of death, every moment of sleep beneath the juniper tree is watched by the eyes that never slumber nor sleep. God sees. Now the fact that that God sees is either comforting to you or it's daunting. It's comforting when you're struggling through a crisis. It's daunting when you're enjoying and entrenched in your sin. God sees. He hears, he sees, he remembers. But then we're told he knows. It's just great how this text ends, right? God knows. (laughs) Friends, it's somewhat unusual to to have a text that simply says God knew. And our inquisitive minds are asking the question, what is it that God knew? When I was in high school, I played soccer. I started playing soccer uh, when I was a junior in high school, at least at that school. And uh, you know, in my life, God used the sport of soccer to bring me to a place where I would hear the gospel and I embraced the gospel. And my coach happened to also be my youth pastor, and he was the person that led me to the Lord ultimately. And So there was something special to me about this team. And um, we, my senior year, we had done really, really well in, in, our, in our team and we had, we had won the championships and now we were, we were off to Tennessee to play an, a, a tournament basically of, of, of champions and we played our games. We had three games and it came to the last game and we played well and we won that game and we're sitting around talking and kind of rejoicing over that and all the rest of the team goes off to the locker room and it's just me and the coach. And I go up to him and I just start being overrun with emotions, because I was just realizing at that moment, I will never play a game for this team ever again. And because this team, the fellowship and the friendship and the camaraderie and then the gospel component for it, for me, it was an overwhelming thing. And I just started to bawl and I just buried my face in his chest, and he just held me. And he knew. <laughs> he knew what was going on with me. He knew. And friends, there's a sense in which this is what's happening in this text. When, when we're told that God knew. It's not some, some just kind of int, intellectual knowledge that says, well, God has an understanding of what's going on. No, this knowledge is based on intimacy. This knowledge is based on relationship. This knowledge is based on covenant. It's not that God was aloof from their suffering. He knew their suffering. And friends, you may be going through some some things. And trust me, if you're one of his children, he knows. He knows. And he doesn't want you to forget that fact. That doesn't mean that suffering isn't going to continue or that hardship is is not going to come down the, the, the path. Or that life is just going to be peachy key. All of those things happen in life because we're living in a sin-cursed world. And God knows. Isn't that wonderful? As we draw time to a close here, I want to circle back on this text one more time. And it's three things that I want to just drive home a little bit. Number one, this whole idea of layers. Friends, we must always remember that we are living in these layers. There's a human layer where where we live our lives, where we touch, we feel, we smell, we see, we hear. This is the human level, but there's also a spiritual level where where God is actively involved with his creation and in particular with his children. And the question here is, do you live your your life in light of those layers? And I think sometimes when we're going through the dark valleys, all we see is what we can see and we can touch. And when it, things don't seem to go the way we want them, when we prayed and we've done the things that we're supposed to do in quotation marks, and it doesn't seem like God is responding, we can start to forget about that other layer and just focus on this layer. But see, the, the whole text here is saying we have to bite this together. Yes, this is what was going on with Moses, but this is also what was going on with God. And this together is a beautiful tasting chocolate that God has given us to hold on to. We live our lives knowing that God is actively at work in our lives. Secondly, loyalty. God is bound to us through his new covenant. Just think about that when you celebrate the Lord's Supper together, you realize you are going back to the basics of reminding yourself of this new covenant that took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid for your sins. He hears your prayers. He sees your struggles. He remembers his covenant with you, and he knows you can always trust him. But trusting him also means obeying him And waiting on his wisdom. He's loyal to you. And he wants you to be loyal to him. Because covenant isn't supposed to be a one-way street. And finally, I want to just mention the word life. John's gospel tells us that Jesus came to give us life. This life in Christ is fueled by seeing the spiritual layer and embracing his loyalty that comes because of his promises. See, these are essential to understand that God is loyal to us because of the covenant, and also that he is involved with us. All, those are working together so that now we can, we can live life. And when he says here, when Jesus says, I, I came that may, they may have life and have it abundantly, it's not talking about money. It's talking about freedom. It's talking about gospel. It's talking about all the the benefits that come because of what Christ has done for us. We can live life with hope. And when tragedy comes, we have an anchor in God himself. Friends, there's life for us. God wants us to live that life, seeing how he's working together with his people and fully affixed to his covenantal promise to us. May we seek to live our lives in such a way. Lord, thank you for your kindness. We are broken people. We fail. And yet, Lord, even when we fail, when we are repentant, when we come to you bowing the knee, seeking to restore everything as best we can according to your will, you are at work restoring us, forgiving us. And you are at work shaping us even through our sinfulness. And we might think that our sinfulness is so bad that you could never make anything beautiful out of it. And yet, Lord, you continue to work your will. And when we humble our hearts before you, you have your way with us and you continue to shape us. We see that through the example of Paul and others who were once opposed to you, but were brought in by your gospel. Help us, Lord, now to consider that there is life for us and that you are constantly growing us. That we have not arrived yet. And even when we do arrive in heaven, We will not have reached that measure of perfection. We will still fall short, but we're thankful that your son, Jesus Christ, was that perfect sacrifice, that perfect Savior. And Lord, that in him, and because of his righteousness, we can stand before you, and we can call you Father. Lord, thank you so much. You are a faithful God. You are a faithful shepherd. And Lord, you are faithful to keep nurturing us in the direction you want us to go. and We praise you for it. We ask this now in your name. Amen.